with God because it's such an important part of our faith. And it might sound like very basic, but, but uh, let me fill you in on, on something that's happening in our world. In our life group at the end of last year, someone shared around a, a blog post, an article from a website called Desiring God. It's a ministry that John Piper started many years ago. It's a great ministry. And it was kind of like, you know, as Christians approach the new year, uh, what should they be thinking about in their spiritual lives, etc.? And there were just a whole bunch of questions that were just meant to make you think about the new year from a spiritual point of view. And I've written all the questions down in the beginning of my journal. I've got a, like an electronic journal. So for 2023, I wrote them at the top of the journal. And there were some good questions like, what one spiritual discipline do I want to grow in in the coming year? Or uh, what, what is one way I can help out my local church in the coming year? Or what is one time waster I can try and sort out this coming year? But one of the questions really got me thinking, and it was this one. What is one thing that you can do this year that will have the biggest impact in 10 years? Okay, quite a deep question. Took me a little while to think about it, and the answer I wrote down, which is still in my journal from January, invest in my kids' faith. So, Candice and I, we've got three kids, 10 and 8 and 4, and the last couple of years, we've been really focusing, teaching our kids how to read the Bible, teaching them how to pray, teaching them how to hear God, how to spend time with God, how to worship, because we know the best thing for our kids, one day they will become teenagers and not want to interact with us very much, one day they'll leave home and go into the big wide world, the best thing we could do for our kids is to teach them how to have a relationship with God and not rest on our faith, but have their own relationship with God. The best thing that, as leaders of this church, the best thing we could do for anyone in this church is to help you have a relationship with God. It's not to solve your problems, not to do all the counseling, and we do, and that's okay, but actually to point you to Christ because He's the one that we need more than anything else. We need help. We do get help. I'm not saying we shouldn't get help, but our own relationship with God is so important. So this week and next Sunday, we're going to be taking a, a bit of a closer look at that. Who likes to take notes on Sunday? Salome always comes with her pen. I always see it. Okay. For the note takers, you're going to exercise a lot this morning. All right. Okay. Just warning you in advance. Get your hands warm. Get the blood flowing. Get ready. I'm actually thinking of printing these out as a basis for next Sunday as well to hand out. So first kind of this morning is going to be looking at, firstly, why we spend time with God, then looking at some practical things, which I hope will be helpful, because just theory without practice, practical is not always helpful. Uh, and then lastly, we're going to jump into, if we have time, how do we read the Bible when we're spending time with God? You with me? Okay. So why should we spend time with God? What is the point? Why should we do it? And most of these points are from a pastor called Rick Warren, who wrote a fantastic book about studying the Bible. And uh, so these are all his points, and I'm happy to credit him. Someone once said that when you preach or when you speak in public, it's like making cheese from the milk of many cows. So I've used many cows' milk to make the cheese that you're going to eat this morning. Does that make sense? It's not all my own stuff, which is fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. 
But firstly, why should we spend time with God? The first point is that we need fellowship with God. We need fellowship with God. There's a whole bunch of sub-points, A, B, C, and D. I haven't listed them as A, B, C, and D, but you can if you want. The first sub-point is that we were created to have fellowship with God. The only creature ever made in God's image on purpose for relationship is people. We were designed from the start to have a unique relationship with God, different to the trees, different to your pets, different to the angels. If there are aliens, different to the aliens. We're designed, we're made to have fellowship with God. And so we shouldn't miss out on this privilege that we get to spend time with God. Second sub-point, Jesus died so that we could have fellowship with God. The fact that Adam and Eve sinned, man has fallen, we all go our own way, that sin causes a blockage, a rift between us and God. Jesus came, He said, to make a way back to the Father. So He died to restore our fellowship. And if we choose not to spend time with God, it's like we're rejecting that which Jesus died to make possible. Quite a, quite a big point there. Third sub-point, Jesus spent time alone with God. And he got his source of strength for his ministry from his times with God. You can go and read about them in the Gospels. If we don't spend time with God, we will never have the same strength and the same refreshing that Jesus had. We need to spend time alone with God like Jesus did. The one, two, three, four, uh, fourth sub-point. You look throughout church history, every great man and woman that was used by God spent much time with God alone. In other words, if you want God to use you, it's unlikely to happen if you're not spending time with Him. Fifth, we cannot be a healthy, growing Christian if we don't have fellowship with God. If we don't spend time with God, reading the Bible, praying, worshiping, meditating on His Word, putting it into practice, if we don't spend time with God, we are going to be weak and sickly in our faith. We'll look like every other person of the world around us. We're not going to have this inner power and inner life that God promises. So why should we spend time with God? One, we need fellowship with God. Two, it's our privilege as Christians to spend time with God. And there's some more sub-points here, just four this time. Firstly, we give devotion to God. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. There's been a wrong emphasis, just speaking generally about the church of the Western world, there's been a wrong emphasis in the church about what we can get from God, what we can get from church, a, a bit of a what's in it for me mentality. It's a very Western way of thinking. And it's because of a big emphasis on entertainment in our modern society. And it's a wrong emphasis that we have. We give devotion to God because He's worthy, as we sung in that last song. Not because of what we get out of it, because He is worthy and He died for us. So we give devotion to God. Secondly, we get direction from God. 
David puts it like this in Psalm 25, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. We get direction from God. Thirdly, we gain delight in God. Psalm 16 verse 11, David says, you've made known to me the path of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. In other words, the secret to, to godly joy is spending time with God. There's no shortcut. There's no trick. The way we are filled with joy is by hanging out with Jesus. So many Christians are miserable. They have sad lives. They're unhappy. But it's because they never spend time with Jesus. Fourthly, we grow more like God. We're made in His image, but the fact that we're fallen, we start off life with a fallen nature and we sin, means that we don't look so much like the Heavenly Father. And so the more we follow Jesus, the more we read His Word, the more time we spend with each other, the more we look like Him. We become more like Him. Have you ever met a married couple that have been married for decades and decades? They start to talk the same and sound the same just because they've hung out with each other for so long. And that's God's design for us. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, we are being transformed into His likeness. We're becoming like Him as we behold Him, as we look at Him. Nadia, your little one is uh, coming down the aisle, just so you know. <laughs> coming to mommy, very cute. So as we read, as we imbibe His Word, we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, Paul says. So it's our privilege as Christians, secondly. Thirdly, we gain tremendous benefit from spending time with God. And if you've read any of the Bible, there are incredible promises that God has given to His people. They're amazing. They're astounding. They blow our mind. They, we think, can they be true? He offers us power for those who believe. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, everything we need for life and godliness, Peter writes. But you know what? They don't just land in your lap on Sunday morning. <laughs> they don't just arrive. We can't earn them like we earn a salary by working hard 40 hours a week. It's not a result of our effort that we get these. It's by spending time with God. Paul says we, we can come before His throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. All the stuff God wants to give are found where God is. So we spend time with God. Here are just a few very quick things from the Bible that we benefit by spending time with God. Joy. I've mentioned Psalm 119, strength, Isaiah chapter 40, peace, Romans chapter 8, verse 6, stability, hey, we need that in our climate, eh? Psalm 46, success, Joshua 1, verse 8, answered prayer, John 15 and verse 7. And as you spend time with God, others will notice that we're different, that we're spending time with God, that He's changing us. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. So why do we spend time with God? We need fellowship with God. It's our privilege as Christians. 
and we gain tremendous benefit from it. I shouldn't need to convince us that it's good to spend time with God, but I think it's an important foundation. Otherwise, it can sound like a law, like a rule, like a religion. We don't want to become like Pharisees. We have to do X and Y. No, it's so good for us to spend time with God, and we were designed that way. So practically, let's try and get practical for a few moments. How do we spend time with God? You won't find in the Bible a step-by-step process. Do X, do Y, do A, B, C. You won't find that, right? But there are some clues in Scripture. But 2,000 years of Christian experience shows us We've been perfecting this for a couple thousand years, right? There there are some good principles that we can have. The first one is that we should find a place that is quiet. Some people call it a quiet time or devotional time. Find a place that is quiet and free of distractions. That's really important because we want to focus on God. We don't want to be taken away by some other noises or activities or a TV screen that might be going off. And we need to be alert, we need to be awake. Now, this, is, this might sound like a very simple thing, but it's, been a, it's changed my times with God in the last couple of months. So this year, I've struggled not to get up early, not to set my alarm, not to go downstairs to the study, not to read the Bible, not to pray, but I've struggled with being tired through all of that. And it's just like, it feels like my spiritual life flatlined. It's being very vulnerable this morning, right? And then I realized, but hang on, when I travel What I've realized is that when I travel for work, I work for an agricultural company and got to travel to farms during the year, and I stay at a guest house or a, or a hotel or something, my morning routine's different. I'll wake up, put the kettle on, make some coffee, but then I'll get dressed for the day and I'll wash my face and put my clothes on and shoes on and style their hair, etc. And then I spend time with God. Normally that happens at home after I've spent time with God. And then I suddenly realize, hang on, I'm so much more awake If I've splashed some water on my face, brushed my teeth, styled the hair, got dressed. So about six weeks ago, I thought, let me try this out. So the night before, I got all my clothes ready, put them in the bathroom, woke up normal time for me, for for time with God. But I got dressed first and washed my face, all the stuff, went downstairs with the coffee. And you know what? I was awake and alert And I can promise you the last six weeks of my times with God have been like, simply by that little tweak. It sounds silly, but but when you spend time with God, be alert. Find a way to be awake, you know, because you can read the Bible and be half asleep and not get anything out of it. We have to prioritize our time with God. For many people, that's first thing in the morning. For other people, you're a night owl and your mind is clearest late at night. God bless you. I don't know how you do it but do it. (laughs) Some people block off time during the day and try to avoid multitasking. Why do I say that? Because 
it's not wrong to, let's say, pray while you're driving somewhere. You're going to meet a client or listening to the audio Bible while you're on the way to work, etc. Or listening to worship music while you're, while you're cooking. It's not wrong to do that. But the human, as much as many people think they can multitask, we want to give God our undivided attention when we spend time with Him. Okay? So it's not wrong to pray while you drive. You should do that as an add-on. Not wrong to listen to an audio Bible if you've got a long commute ahead of you. That's cool. But if multitasking is the only way you spend time with God, I can promise you, you're not giving Him your undivided attention. Have you ever had a conversation with someone or had a coffee with someone and they were half on their phone? And you're looking at them and they're looking down and then they're looking up and they're like nodding, but they're actually typed. Like it's, it's dis- disconcerting. We don't want God to feel like that when we spend time with Him. We give Him his, our undivided attention. Should be personal, alone, quiet, undistracted. And our times with God don't have to be too long. I don't know what many of you have come from other churches possibly, but I don't know what you've learned growing up, but they don't have to be long, okay? But it must be a meaningful connection, all right? So in our parenting journey and getting better at our parenting style and parenting our three kids, we've heard this phrase that others have used, connection over perfection. And in the parenting sense, it means we want a, a, a loving connection with our child rather than trying to force them to be perfect. But then they hate us eventually one day. So, so it's connection over perfection. I think we could apply the same to our relationship with God, is that we should prioritize a connection with God rather than trying to have the perfect quiet time. You know, reading three chapters of the Bible and praying for an hour and listening to a whole album of worship music. But if our mind's not there, or we're doing it like it's some religious law, we're not connecting with God. So rather spend 10 minutes meditating on a couple of verses and and letting them soak into your soul and change you. Rather listen to two worship songs, but you, you enter God's presence and you feel close to Him again and you get perspective. Rather pray for 10 minutes of heartfelt prayer. Jeremiah says, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Rather that than the perfect quiet time every day of the week. Connection over perfection. And don't get upset or disappointed or feel like a failure when some mornings don't go according to plan. You accidentally snooze your alarm instead of getting out of bed. Or this has happened to me often with young kids. Get up early, I'm downstairs, I'm with the Bible, I'm, I'm trying to read and concentrate and hear God, and then one of the kids wakes up early. Happened to anyone? Yo, a lot. And, and at first I got upset with the child, and I'd be agitated, and I'd try and be calm with them and try and get them back to bed quickly. So I, but then I'd spend time with God, and I'd be so upset that they'd interrupted. <laughs> Eventually I'm like, well, the child's here. I'll just... Spend the time with the child in the Lord and read the scripture to the child and try and explain, you know what I mean? And just have a devotion with my child that morning. Sometimes we just have to roll with it if it doesn't work according to plan, okay? Don't beat yourself up if it uh, doesn't work out perfectly. I think it's really important next to be aware of the season that you're in. We're all different ages. We're all in different life stages. When I was single and unmarried and had no kids, 
I spent a lot of time with God, and I needed it because I was a new Christian. I even taught myself how to play guitar, and I would worship and sing myself, worship myself. And the house I was staying in, there were three other guys renting the rooms like it was a house share. They didn't enjoy the worship so much because they could hear how badly I sung, but hey, me and Jesus were, were great. We'd spend lots of time praying, lots of time studying the Bible. But then I got married, and suddenly it felt, I felt self-conscious praying out loud. I had to like go to a different room, and it was just different now being married and living with someone. And then I started working. I had to get up early and drive to work. Like I had to change how I've done my times with God depending on the season I'm in. It's just very practical, but be aware of the season you're in. When our kids were very young, Candace struggled to spend meaningful time with God because two toddlers running around, getting up at night, sleep deprivation, God, just there's a reality to that. And this might sound like a bit of a contradiction to the earlier um, comment about not multitasking, but if you're in a desperate season like toddlers and babies, <laughs> and I say it's a desperate season because you're tired, exhausted, sleep-deprived, and life has to carry on. Some people have to work, put their child in childcare. They still have a home to look after and a meal to cook and a husband that might travel for work and even harder if you're single-parenting for a few days. There's reality to that. God knows that. And so find any moment you can. You might be sweeping the kitchen floor. Put worship music on. You know, Take whatever opportunity, what, what we've done over the years. Um, get little cue cards and write out scriptures and stick them in the bathroom. So wherever you need the loo, and it's normally a quiet place if you've got kids, because they, they don't come in and bother you when you're in the bathroom. Hey? Our one bathroom's very far from the kids' bedrooms. <laughs> you can see those scriptures and you can pray them and meditate on them, but find creative ways of spending time with God when you're in a desperate season. Uh, you know, in the, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, and they were going around the desert for 40 years. You know, God gave them manna from heaven, but they had to go out and collect it every day. And I'm not going to read the scripture, but in Exodus 14, Exodus 16, um, Moses writes that every day they had to go out and gather manna, the bread for the day. You can translate that to the spiritual equivalent. We have to spend time with God every day to get some sustenance from Him. But it says those who collected little didn't have too little, and those who collected much didn't have too much. And so there are seasons where we're only able to gather one or two flakes of manna in the morning, spiritual manna. And God says, it'll be okay, it'll sustain you. And there are other seasons where we can spend lots of time with God, we can gather much manna. And in those seasons, we pack the pantry full, so that when, when there's a, a different season, we can draw from what we've stored up in the pantry, so to speak. But find ways to, to do that. I remember once, uh, well, many times, but uh, this is not a good parenting tip. But with our first child, you know, the first child is like the experimental child. You never quite get it right. <laughs> we, we, for a stage with Ethan, when he was a toddler, we tried to get him to sleep at night. And if he didn't fall asleep, we'd hold him and we'd rock him. Right? That's not good because, well, it gets him to sleep eventually. But, but you walk out and you're still, you're still like this. <laughs> 
and they become dependent on you rocking them, right? So once you've rocked for a few minutes, you can kind of do it without thinking, and you can actually pray while you're rocking your child to sleep, you know? So we find ways to connect with God. There are um, lots of very, very, very good podcasts from churches all over the world that you could listen to, plenty of sermons online, many devotion emails that many of us probably get and delete, <laughs> plenty of WhatsApp forwarded messages, lots of YouTube spiritual teachings, right? You, we can access any content, but I want to say be careful of making any of those things your primary diet. God's designed us to connect with Him. I'm scared that if we listen to lots of online teachings and podcasts and some of this stuff is good and some of this stuff's terrible, I just want to put it out there, don't believe everything you see on YouTube. I'm scared that we end up going back to the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? We have a mediator between us and God. We've got to listen to so-and-so's podcast every morning for us to connect with God. So-and-so's teaching from that church in another country in order for us to connect with God. That's not God's design. That's someone else's revelation. It's not, those things aren't wrong, but they mustn't be our primary diet. And the thing is, when we listen to lots of those kinds of teachings, and it's happened to people in this church, maybe because they haven't connected much with God themselves, I don't know, but they start taking on that other person's theology. And sometimes it's a bit crooked. It's a bit, a little bit off-center. And they've drifted from God. And now they, they're where they shouldn't be. And the problem is if we keep relying on other people's teachings, we get used to being spoon-fed and not hearing God for ourselves and being lazy and being entitled and, and taking on what other people think rather than us going to God ourselves. So those things aren't wrong, but if they're your primary diet, I ask you, please, rather spend time yourself with God. That's some practical stuff. We'll get into some more next Sunday. But for me, there are, there are three main big aspects when it comes to spending time with God. One is reading the Bible, two is prayer, and three is worship. So this morning, we're going to jump into what does it mean to spend time with God reading His Word. We'll cover worship and prayer on a personal basis, just me and God, next Sunday, just so you know where we're going today and next Sunday. Don't feel like you have to have all three of those big elements in your devotion times every day. Because I think that's an unrealistic expectation. Sometimes you just, you read a verse in the Bible and that's all you can think about that whole morning. You don't have to have the perfect quiet time where you also pray and also worship. As long as you're connecting with God meaningfully, that's the most important thing. So when it comes to God's Word, and we'll get a, into a little bit of, of it in a moment, I've got a whole bunch of R's. So if everyone likes to take notes, they're all going to be starting with R which is cool because I don't often alliterate the points. But when it comes to God's Word, we first need to ready our heart. I've been trying the last couple of years, as I start my devotion time with the Lord, to say a short prayer to try to get my heart in the right place. Because I can physically show up and read the Bible and pray, but if my heart's not in the right place, 
It's not going to help me or God or anyone else. And so I often, I will pray a short prayer saying, God, I, often it's good morning, Lord. Good morning, Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Father, I come to you this morning dependent on you. I try and humble myself before God because I need to remind myself that I'm coming into the presence of the Creator. That's a big deal. We can be quite blasé and casual when we come to God. And I, I don't know if that's the best attitude of our heart. We have to come humbly. The Bible says we can come boldly because He's purchased our salvation. We can come into His presence with confidence, but not arrogance. And I, I try to um, have some anticipation in my heart, some expectancy. You look at the Gospels, and wherever Jesus went, stuff happened, right? Why was there a crowd following him? Not because once a month he did a miracle, but because something happened every time Jesus did something. The most boring day, he would have a discussion with the Pharisees, and he would rebuke them with some amazing teaching, you know? The rest of the time, he would be walking on water, calming seas, multiplying food, Healing the sick, it was exciting. Stuff was happening all the time. And I want to come to my God with a sense of He could do anything. Luke one thirty seven. for nothing is impossible with God. Now, we can't have a wrong expectation. Oh, God, if God does, does nothing, then He's not real. Because if we have unmet expectations, we're disappointed. So I try and guard my heart. Let me not think wrongly about God. I'm not here to get from God, but... Actually, if I'm in the presence of God, anything could happen. So I try to ready my heart as I come to read His Word in the morning. For me, or secondly, so ready your heart. Secondly, read the Bible. I tend to read like one chapter or even a portion of a chapter. Most Bibles are broken up into sections depending on kind of what's happening. Sometimes, like the story goes over two or three chapters, I'll read those two or three chapters to understand the whole kind of story. And that's totally fine. There's no set amount you have to read. What I've found helpful is to read it out aloud because then it forces you to be alert and awake if you're trying to do it in the morning. And when you're hearing the Bible, like it's, you're almost reading it to yourself, you, you remember it more and you concentrate a bit more if you're reading out loud. Then we should read it again and again. We should read it two or three times and let God's Word soak into our hearts. Better to let His truth marinate and get inside us than to rush and read as many verses as we can and tick off a, a list. Oh, look how much I read today. God's going to be so happy I read so much. Well, did you actually learn anything from what you read? Or did you just speed read all the way through it? So let it soak in. Read it over a couple of times. Have a reading plan. There are hundreds you can get online. Some of them you can go through the Bible in one year. Some of them you can do the New Testament in one year. Some of them are chronological. In other words, not going from book to book, but going in order of history and time. Those are quite cool to read. But I definitely recommend, even if you are not doing a reading plan, read through a book at a time. Don't jump from topic to topic because then you won't go through things systematically. I think all of us should be able to read through the whole Bible a few times in our life at least to get the whole kind of big picture and flow of God's story happening on planet Earth. 
So make sure you read, you have a reading plan and you read through a book at a time. There are a whole different bunch of Bible translations. So we can put up that slide of the different Bible translations. Some people say, well, which, which is the right Bible for me to use? Well, it depends on you, okay? On the blue side, the left side, this is like a spectrum of some of the most popular English translations. On the left side, the blue side, these are the word-to-word -word translations. I see some people taking pictures. I'll post it on the church WhatsApp group as well. Word-for-word -word translations take the original Greek word or Hebrew word and try and find the most accurate English version. So those are the most accurate literal translations that you could read. But because it's like this Greek word equals this English word, sometimes the sentences are a bit hard to read. So if you read the New King James, uh, the New King James Bible, uh, the New American Standard Bible, the ESV, very popular, very accurate literal translation. Many people use it. Uh, it's a fantastic um, version to use. I've got an ESV Bible at home. Uh, on the far right, the red side, red is warning, beware, okay? There are what are called paraphrases. And these are people that have taken the Scripture and just try and interpret it for modern day. It's not accurate in the sense of being the literal words or the meaning. It's trying to convey the overall idea of that passage in modern language. The passion, the, passage trans, the passion Translation, TPT, and the message, the MSG, kind of fall into that category on the far right. Again, they, they're helpful to use, but don't make that your primary diet. Okay. Use it to compare verses, to get some additional insight. They're really cool, but don't make it the only Bible you read or the primary Bible that you read. Then you have the stuff in the, in the middle, the meaning for meaning or the thought for thought like the, um, uh, the GW, the Good Word Translation, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, and the Improvement, the HCSB, the Holman's Christian Standard Bible. There's the NIV, which is very popular. I read the NIV nearly all the time. And the NLT, the New Living Translation, also a little bit closer to the right-hand side. These take the overall thought or the meaning of that part of the Scripture and find the best way to say it in our language. And so they're pretty accurate on a thought-for-thought -thought basis. If you want to be technical and study the Greek and Hebrew, there are other Bibles that give you the Greek and Hebrew meanings. But if you want something that's good to read, depending on your... If English is not your first language, can I suggest the NIV or the NLT, if you're reading in non-first language English? Um, is that helpful? So pick a, pick a translation that... Uh, even if you read the NLT, right... You're not going to go often to heresy or error, even though it, it seems like it's quite far from the blue side. It's still very, very accurate translation. Does that make sense? Cool. Uh, this is my favorite Bible to read. It's called the Thompson's Chain Reference. It's an NIV study Bible. You get study Bibles that have got footnotes at the bottom of the page. Those are really helpful. I've got one of those. This doesn't have footnotes but it's got a chain index. That's why it's called the Thompson's Chain Reference. And you get them in NIV and ESV, etc. And what's cool about this Bible is that in the margin, on the side, it's got these chain references, like a chain ladder. And let's say you're reading and, and Jesus talks about heaven, let's say, a, a random topic. 
in the margin next to where it says heaven, where Jesus might be talking about heaven and hell, it'll say heaven, it'll give like a number, like 2732, that's like the topical reference. You can go back to 2732 at the back and find all the scriptures about heaven and the whole Bible. But what's cool about the chain reference, where Jesus says heaven and gives you the little reference, it tells you the very next time in the Bible that the word heaven is mentioned. So then you can go, oh, this is Matthew chapter 13, and Jesus spoke about heaven. The next time Jesus speaks about heaven is Matthew 19. I can quickly go to Matthew 19, and you can kind of follow the thread of a topic all the way through. So for me, I found this when I was, uh, even now, but especially as as a young believer, an outstanding Bible. But there are many other good ones. I'm just telling you what I know to be good from my experience. So read the Bible. And then the next R, the third R, read your heart, read the Bible, reflect on it. Don't just read it and move on, but mull it over, read it again. Ask yourself, what, what is the author saying? Because some, some of the Bible is Jesus' teaching, right? Some of it is, is like history, what Jesus did. Some of it is Paul instructing a certain church about their context. Some of this is letters written to people, okay? So, Lord, what, what was the writer saying to that person? Maybe there's a principle you can learn from that. I've found helpful to try and summarize the passage. I've been reading in 2 Corinthians, and I would, I would write physically on a piece of paper, Paul is saying this, and if they do this, then this will happen. Like I, I just summarize it because then I'm thinking about the text and trying to put it into how I would understand it and summarizing it. Often I'll try and figure out, well, if my 10-year-old asked me about this verse, how would I explain it to a 10-year-old? I promise you, you learn so much by trying to teach someone else, especially if it's a child, because you have to explain it in a way that, and concepts that they can understand. That's often a helpful way. We can also ask the question, what is God saying to me? So, so Paul might have been writing to the Corinthian church, and you might learn a principle from what he said, but then on top of that, God might say something related to that to you specifically for that time. Reflect on it. We should also be figuring out, well, if God's speaking to me, what should I do? Because Jesus said, you are a bit dumb if you take his word and don't build your life on it. It's like you're building your house on a sand pit. But wise is the person who hears my words and puts them into practice, like a wise man who builds their house on a rock. So we have to do something with God's word. So read your heart, read the Bible, reflect on it, and then write it down. It's really helpful to write on a journal. Yes, it's not an R. You can hear some laughter. It's close enough. <laughs> write it down. I, I have a digital journal, and I type things digitally, but I also write down on a piece of paper what God's saying to me. Scientists have shown that if you're writing and you're looking at the words you're writing, you actually remember more than if you just read it. Scientifically proven. So write, write stuff down. And then next, respond. There's got to be some response. Sometimes it's like, oh my word, wow God, I, this is causing me to worship you even more. Sometimes we just, we want to worship God based on what we've read. We want to thank Him can often lead to worship and and praise and prayer, which we'll get into next week. 
but respond. Sometimes it might be some kind of thing we have to do, some obedience, some step of faith possibly God's challenging us to do. And the last R, something that I'm not good at, but I used to be 15 years ago, review your notes. Go back over. Maybe Sunday evening or Monday morning, your devotion time isn't reading the new, the new scriptures, but reviewing what has God been showing me the last seven days and reviewing those scriptures because we just forget them, right? It's just we're humans and we forget. So I know that reviewing notes is such a helpful thing. Don't make your devotion time with God a Bible study time, okay? It's, it's not to study the Bible, it's to connect with God, for us to learn His ways, to learn His Word, to get it inside us, for Him to speak to us, to change us. If you want to study the Bible, make other time for it. Maybe every second Saturday, take your Bible and a theology book to a coffee shop and just spend a few hours reading a theology book or enrolling on a class online or whatever it might be. Before we had kids, we had some friends who also in a similar stage of life, and we said to them, hey, we'd like to study the Bible and theology. This was about 15, 16 years ago. We were in another church in another province, and their idea was, well, let's once a month hang out on a Saturday afternoon. We'll bring our Bibles and our study Bibles and theology books, etc., and we'll bring food, and we'll spend two hours debating a topic and looking it up. You know, the topic was decided before, and, and then we would cook together and spend the evening chilling. And we did that once a month for a whole year. It was so fun. But we set aside a different time to study God's Word. Don't make your devotion time, connecting with God time, all about studying. Because the Pharisees studied, but they didn't connect with God. All right. I want to end off this morning with a, just an example of what does this look like? Tomorrow morning or this evening if you're a night out and you're spending time with God and you're reading a bit of Scripture what does that look like? So we're going to read in Matthew chapter 3. Hopefully it'll come up on the screen. And from verse 13, just four verses, five verses we're going to look at, as if I was having my quiet time. Okay? This is the baptism of Jesus. And this is the NRV. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but now you're coming me to me to be baptized. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. He agreed. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Just a short text. It's not Jesus teaching. It's not a parable. It's not Paul instructing the church. It's just a record of something that happened in Jesus' life. And we should then read it again. I'm not going to read it again. But we should mull over it and think about it. And you might be like, sometimes as you read, like God highlights a verse. And like you can't stop looking at that verse. If it happened to you. You might just focus on that verse for the whole of your quiet time. But sometimes uh, a verse just stands out to me, and I kind of drill down on that verse. But as you're thinking about this text, you might be like, oh, that's strange. Why did, why did John try to stop Jesus getting baptized? Huh. 
Well, Jesus kind of agreed with him, but says, actually, it's proper for us to do it like this. We realize that even though Jesus didn't need to be baptized because he was sinless, yet he did it. Why? Why? You should be asking questions as you're with God. Lord, why? Why did Jesus get baptized though he didn't need to be? Or maybe he was setting an example for us. Yeah, yeah, he's setting, he's setting an example. He didn't need to be. John eventually agreed and baptized him. And as you're thinking like, wow, Jesus didn't need to do something, but he did it to show us how to do, to do life. As you're thinking, God could just challenge you with a, a gentle question in your heart. Well, are you following my example? Not just in baptism, but in any area. And suddenly you write down, oh, am I following God's example? Oh, wow. That's quite a hectic thing to think about, am I? And you start thinking about your, your words and your life and your decisions and am I following God's example? And maybe God highlights some things where you're not following his example. That's God speaking to you, right, through the scripture. Maybe he then asks you, well, are you being a good example to other believers? Are you an example that others look at your life and can see God in you? Oh, that's a tougher question to ask. And this has happened to me so often, not, not just with this scripture, but as I'm thinking about something that God's asking me, I realize, or God highlights, he convicts me through the Holy Spirit, hey, something I did or said three days ago, hey, maybe that wasn't the best example. Whew, I'm sorry, Lord. And God reveals like a blind spot in our lives. And our response should be, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I didn't even realize I was doing that thing or talking in that way or dressing that way, whatever it might be. And we, we repent, we say sorry. And then God says, wow, maybe you should apologize to that person. Oh, that's difficult. I've often had to phone people up and say, hey, when we chatted a few days ago, I'm so sorry I said that. I, I didn't mean to gossip, but I said something about that person I shouldn't have. I'm so sorry that wasn't. I've often had to phone unsaved people like my boss, and said, I'm so sorry I did that or I didn't do that. And we've got to be humble. When God speaks to us, we have to respond. And as you're thinking more about this text, you might, if you're a new believer, you might say, what is baptism? You might have to go and study what is baptism or ask, ask a, a friend. You might be thinking, well, why should we get baptized? This could lead to a whole other little study that you do. Or you might, like me, how would I explain this to a 10-year-old? It's an interesting task. God might challenge you, well, are you baptized? You see, even Jesus, he didn't need to, but he set an example of being baptized. What about you? And you might say, oh, but you might have all these excuses why you never got baptized, but you know you should have. And actually, there aren't any excuses. That's maybe for a different time. But God could challenge you directly on what is happening in the text. Does that make sense? We see also that Jesus, before he preached a sermon, before he'd worked the miracle, there's the voice of the Father saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. He hadn't done anything good. He'd lived perfectly, sure, but he'd never achieved or earned his father's affirmation. God might drop into your heart, why are you working so hard to impress me? Why are you trying so hard to get my attention? You are my child 
whom I love. I'm well pleased, even if you've never preached a sermon or worked a miracle. Friends, we all need the Father's affirmation. And if you just are aware of that concept, as you read Scripture, you'll find God wanting to affirm you over and over and over again. But how good is God? We don't need to perform for Him to love us. Why? Jesus has paid the price for Him to love us already. We see Jesus was obedient to God. He went through this small thing of baptism. We could ask the question, what about my obedience? Even in small things. There are no small things in God's kingdom. God looks at every little aspect of our lives, and if we're obedient, he says, ah, I see Lawrence is obedient in that thing. No one else saw Lawrence's obedience. It was a secret obedience. But God rewards us, how? By giving us a greater responsibility. There's no small things in God's kingdom. Every obedience is important. You can look at the end of that scripture, and we see that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If Jesus needed it for his ministry, how much more us imperfect, fallen, yet saved humans, how much more do we need the empowering of God and this grace through his Spirit to live out our lives? That's kind of what your notes could look like if you just look at those five verses and how God could speak to you possibly, sometimes directly from the actual verse, sometimes by, as you're mulling it over, there's a question that appears in your heart, write it down, think about it, respond, etc. Is that okay? I knew we wouldn't get to all of it, but uh, good thing we've got next week. Can we close our eyes as we end this morning? Father, I pray, just respond to God however you respond. We've got soft carpets, you're welcome to kneel <laughs> if you want, welcome to raise your hands, however you respond to God. Father, I pray that we would not see our time with you like a duty, 